welcome to the first of Practical Neurology's case report podcast discussions. My name is uh, Professor Martin Turner. I'm a consultant neurologist based at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be joined by two colleagues. And I'll ask Ruth Wood to introduce herself first. Ruth. Uh, so hello, my name is Dr. Ruth Wood and I'm an ST4 neurology trainee uh, in Sussex, uh, currently working uh, in Haywards Heath. Great to have you here, Ruth. And uh, Zinyu Tai. Hi, everyone. My name is Zinyu and I'm a specialty trainee in neurology at Oxford, along with Professor Turner. Thanks, Zinyu. So we've got two cases to discuss today. And uh, the idea is just to think about interesting neurology, think about how we come to diagnoses and the sort of information that we process and the deductive reasoning that we all enjoy and which is why we became neurologists. So it's all very relaxed and um, but thank you for looking over a couple of cases for us, uh, Ruth and Sinew. And we'll start with uh, your case, Ruth. So why don't you outline how this case uh, presented? Yep, so this is a case from uh, Dr. Von Berg and colleagues um, from Imperial College London and Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. And it's the case of a right-handed woman in her 70s who is of Indian descent. She presented with a three-day history of worsening confusion, agitation, and uh, was experiencing some hallucinations. It's also uh, written that she wasn't recognising her daughter and uh, she was repeating questions. Okay, well, there's quite a bit for us to, to go on there. So, uh, Sinew, this is an older patient and uh, they're presented with a three-day history of confusion. So what, what uh, in broad terms, are you kind of thinking about with what we've been told so far? Yeah, so we've got this older lady who presents with what sounds like an encephalopathy um, over a couple of days. So I'm thinking of quite a broad differential at the moment. I mean, firstly, does she have some form of systemic infection that could lead to a delirium? I suppose urine and chest are most common, which we'd want to look at. Um, but moving quite quickly to thinking about the brain, um, infective causes such as a viral encephalitis is definitely on the cards here, such as HSV. Okay. Um, with someone in, in this sort of situation, they're, they're coming in with confusion. If you were thinking about uh, a primary HSV infection, what would be some of the uh, features that you might be looking for on examination to support that? So HSV encephalitis usually presents with confusion, um, someone's disorientated, um, but also they might have a pyrexia and it can often present with seizures as well. There may be some focal neurology on top of this, but often they're generally just confused and cognitively not quite right. Yeah, I, I think it's it's often uh, a point that um, I think is under under made sometimes that um, HSV encephalitis can be a, a, actually quite a focal encephalitis. So uh, so I think we would, would be looking for those things. But Ruth, tell us a little bit more because I think there was. Um, at this stage, there were some quite key findings on examination which sent people in a slightly different direction. Yeah, so there was a few more clues in the history as well. So um, a day prior to the presentation with confusion, um, this lady had noticed uh, an abdominal rash um, and she'd been started on oral acyclovir at the same time. 
And this rash was also noted on examination as well. And, and I guess, uh, what, what did you sort of uh, read between the lines that they thought they were treating there? Well, they didn't state that it was a dermatomal rash, but um, on examination, it was described as being painful, erythematous and fasciculous. So it did sound somewhat like shingles, which would fit with her age group, I suppose. Yeah. So so in fact, we, we've got this story really that already really rather clearly that in fact, there was a rash, then the drug and then uh, some confusion coming on after that. And I, and I guess the the concern was, is this a worsening of, of the clinical state or um, uh, could it be that there's something else going on? So um, just tell us um, what uh, how things progressed from there. Uh, well, there was um, also some relevant background uh, medical history as well, um, which Zinyu was asking about earlier. So um, she had no prior cognitive problems, but she did have a background of chronic kidney disease for which she was on peritoneal dialysis. Um, and sounds like she was relatively independent living alone, but she did have carers coming in once a day. And, and on examination, um, in addition to the rash, um, she was noted um, to only be speaking fairly intermittently um, and the content of her speech wasn't meaningful. She could only intermittently follow commands um, and they found that she had globally brisk reflexes with a sort of low grade, possibly a low grade fever of 37.5 if you count that as a fever. Yeah, so so actually, yes, a surprisingly low fever there. Um, no particular mention of headache um, that, that we were told about, which we would certainly uh, see in, in a number of primary encephalitis cases. So, uh, Sinew, we've got a little bit more history. She, she does have a background of chronic kidney disease and the peritoneal dialysis uh, may be relevant. Uh, quite obtunded, certainly uh, um, quite significant cognitive Im impairment, generalised brisk reflexes. Um, what would you be uh, wanting to do at this stage? Yeah, so thinking of all this additional information, I think suddenly a viral encephalitis is on the cards here. So herpes zoster would certainly come to mind. But I also think of a few other things, perhaps, you know, is this rash definitely dermatomal? Could this be some sort of non-blanching rash that may point us into the direction of a meningo encephalitis as well? So I definitely want to keep an eye out for that. <laughs> you know, it's always yeah, funny that we uh, think about ethnicity, um, but in terms of infectious agents, whether TB could come to mind. I definitely want to know whether she's had any recent travel or mingling with returning travelers. And I think the point about the chronic renal impairment is quite important because another common cause of any encephalopathy is just some sort of metabolic upset. And with um, having renal impairment and undergoing dialysis, whether this could be due to high urea or some other metabolic upset as well, um, these are what I'm thinking of at the moment. Uh, depending on the cause of the renal failure, perhaps something like a uh, Prez-like presentation if she's hypertensive. So, and just remind us, Prez, what Prez stands for? Prez being posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, which, from what I understand, neither has to be posterior or reversible, but can present in this way. Yeah, and it's a, it's a radiological diagnosis, isn't it? Really, um, it's a term, a, a sort of radiological term that's used for a, a set of sort of clinical scenarios. Um, but I agree. Um, well, I mean, you know, I think you, you raise an important point there, really, about we were told in the case report very specifically about um, 
ethnicities, um, some Indian ancestry. But I think you're, you're, you know, regardless of that, really, the differential needs to be very wide here. Uh, TB and particularly drug resistant TB is really on the increase from a, a wide range of uh, international destinations. So travel is, is really more important. But but as you say, also um, contacts more generally. So, yeah, very wide differential. I think we're, we're extending it to um, bacteria as well as uh, viruses. So how do you want to proceed on the investigations? So I do some blood tests in the first instance. So things like renal function, full blood count, check your inflammatory markers, liver function tests. I definitely want to do a lumbar puncture in this case uh, to look for things like cells, microscopy, culture, protein, lactate, glucose, and of course, a viral screen, the viral PCR, and ideally get some brain imaging if I could. And then I treat her empirically to begin with, with some acyclovir. I mean, she was really on oral acyclovir, but I'd escalate that and throw in some ketraxone. Um, and if there's any indication she's immunosuppressed, consider ampicillin cover. Um, and when you're adding in the ampicillin, what would you be particularly wanting to cover there? So bugs like listeria can additionally affect people who are immunosuppressed, older people, children, and just a bit of extra cover for that. Definitely. And uh, listeria is often um, a difficult one to treat um, and can be very, very serious. I've, I've not seen that many cases, but sometimes um, I've seen patients who are bradycardic. So there's often quite a brainstem component to listeria. Um, so that's just worth looking out for sometimes. So, yes, good broad spectrum cover here. So, Ruth, tell us what the um, we did get some brain imaging and, and tell us what that showed and then tell us what the uh, uh, cerebrospinal fluid showed, please. Yeah, so she had a CT head, um, a plain CT head, which was um, fairly unremarkable, didn't show any cause of her symptoms. Um, she also had some baseline blood tests, which showed, as you might expect, a raised serum creatinine, um, which we could assume is related to her chronic kidney disease. Um, and she had normal inflammatory markers. And the um, cerebrospinal fluid um, results, were there any cells? So there were... No cells, the white cell count was reported as being normal. Um, and the PCR result, which I suppose usually takes slightly longer to come back, um, eventually did come back showing that it was negative for HSV and VZV, so herpes simplex virus and varicella zoster. Yeah, so I think I think really the absence of um, uh, particularly prominent headache, not particularly marked fever, actually the absence of cells, possibly, um, Sydney, what do you think? I, I would have thought would possibly have already made us start to doubt really whether HSV in particular was was likely. Um, and of course, with no cells, it, it means that we're, we're really much less concerned about uh, a sort of bacterial or other infection. So we've already got a mismatch here between the state of the patient's kind of clinical state really and certainly cognitive impairment and uh, the findings on the investigations and and what does that sort of lead you to to do in that sort of settings in you? Yeah I agree that in the absence of cells and a negative PCR it is unlikely to be suddenly a bacterial infection. I think viral infections perhaps can still sort of remain hidden, but I don't have too much experience with that. I probably want to get some MR imaging to see whether there is anything around the limbic system. But I agree, I probably try to think of another 
uh, cause of her presentation. So perhaps some of the things we mentioned, such as metabolic upset, um, and I suppose with her renal impairment, she's undergoing peritoneal dialysis, whether whether she is in need of another round of dialysis perhaps um, is could be one way to take the things forward as well. There are, I suppose, some rarer potential causes of such an encephalopathy, including autoimmune causes. Um, but I, I guess I'm not entirely certain it, it sort of smells like that at the moment. And, and brain imaging would be very useful, I think. Yeah, so I think um, they, uh, they at this stage, didn't have any MRI scanning. Is that right, Ruth? So they've written, um, she, she deteriorated over the course of her admission and they, they had wanted to get um, an MRI scan, but unfortunately, due to her clinical state, it was deemed to be unsafe. So that wasn't done. Yeah. And so, um, but I suppose we have we've have ruled out a number of, of things. And um, uh, did we have a blood pressure at any point, just because, Sin, you mentioned the, um, uh, the, the issue around prayers potentially? It's not mentioned in the report. No. Okay. So, yeah, then thinking about sort of metabolic issues that hadn't necessarily uh, been initially thought of, we're told, I think, about the creatinine, aren't we? But um, there wasn't really a sense that there was a- any decompensated uh, metabolic derangement. Is that fair to say, Ruth? No. So they didn't mention the urea or the electrolytes, which led me to assume that those were relatively unremarkable. or They would have been highlighted um, and the other thing that wasn't mentioned in the uh, results was the CSF protein, which I thought might have been an interesting result to know. Yeah. So I think at this stage, um, they made a decision, really, that uh, that mismatch between the sort of clinical state and, and what they found on investigations, they came to uh, a particular conclusion. And what was that, Ruth? So they came to the conclusion that she had a viral encephalitis, likely uh varicella zoster and so they escalated as the new suggested escalated her acyclovir from an oral dose to a cns iv dose um, which they adjusted given her renal impairment um, and they also covered her with um, intravenous keftriaxone um, in case she had a coexistent bacterial meningitis as well and what made them change their uh, their sort of treatment plan so I think it was the fact that two days later, she deteriorated further. So they report she'd become less responsive. She was no longer talking. She was just groaning. Um, she developed this gaze preference to the left with some increased tone in her left arm. So she was developing some focal neurological signs. Um, and then they also reported some bilateral jerking movements in her arms, which sounded quite myoclonic. And what do you think made them uh, think about whether this might be uh, a drug-induced problem? Well, they mentioned her um, peritoneal dialysis and um, she was given three additional rounds of peritoneal dialysis. So I think her um, chronic kidney disease was was on their mind and the fact that she hadn't responded to 48 hours worth of treatment and if it, and was deteriorating, I think led them to review the diagnosis. <sighs> So they, they decided and, and had some, some actual plasma measurements as well, but they, they, they made a diagnosis that this was a cyclovir toxicity. Uh, and, 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 and actually, this is a very difficult situation. And I've certainly come across cases like this before, where particularly people who have come with often a rather mild viral 
um, meningitis, uh, relatively mild symptoms, um, perhaps a few lymphocytes um, have received acyclovir initially and uh, and of course uh, very occasionally there will be toxicity and then they appear to worsen. Of course people feel that then that's the viral infection worsening uh, and everything escalates really uh, and, and it, it's really important just to sometimes stop and say well actually do any of these investigations really fit with that initial serious acyclovir worthy infection really. Um, and I think we had quite a, a, a strong pointer here that the investigations were all coming back normal, but certainly complicated by the, the background um, renal problem. So they they decided to stop the acyclovir. Uh, and then what, what happened after that, Ruth? So they sent off quite a specific test. They uh, tested for um, a protein called 9-carboxymethoxymethylguanine, so CMMG, in the serum, uh, and that this is a metabolite of acyclovir, which is thought to be a better marker of acyclovir toxicity than acyclovir levels itself. And they sent off um, it's a gold top um, blood test. Uh, there's a national laboratory, and I think there's around a three day turnaround time. They sent that off, and the uh, result came back as uh, elevated. So the level was 21.2 and the normal level should be less than 2.6. So that was fairly conclusive. So I didn't know about that uh, um, North Bristol uh, service um, and the turnaround time within uh, three days there. So um, that is useful to know. Sinyu, um, what do you sort of feel um, was the kind of turning point in this case uh, and, and any any thoughts really on um, their decision to stop the acyclovir? Yeah, so I think one of the turning points appears to be that she got better with further dialysis. And I suppose that led them to think that maybe this was toxin-driven. And reviewing someone's medication history is always a good good idea at that point. And we were only told about this acyclovir that she had initially. I think it's very interesting. I'd never heard of it myself. Um, I've heard of a senior neurologist once saying that you know, there are many regrets in life, but starting acyclovir is often not one of them. But perhaps in this case, that was that was the case, really. Um, so yeah, it was a fascinating learning point. Yeah, I, I think it, it it normally is an extremely safe drug, and of course, many of us be familiar with it. It gets used a lot um, in the acute setting, and I, and I think we've certainly had discussions in our local Oxford Grand Round about. Sometimes considering really whether the criteria for um, uh, suspected um, HSV uh, encephalitis were really were, were really there, and I think I've always been interested to see an, an audit really of of how many of the features people have when they present, um, because I think we possibly do need to think a little bit more. Certainly, as the population ages and comorbidities, we we will need to think a little bit more about um, high dose acyclovir and, and think about whether we're targeting it at the right patients. But in, in general, of course, it is a very well-tolerated drug uh, and, and it has been shown to make a difference uh, in reducing mortality of that particular infection, HSV. I, I think you raise a very good point about the dialysis. You do wonder really whether if this patient hadn't had uh, renal failure and been on dialysis, um, whether, whether actually it would have taken longer to have made the, uh, the diagnosis and, and they, she would have been assumed to be getting worse. Um, and, and kept on the broad spectrum medication. I, I suppose possibly we may have seen... Sorry, I was, I was just going to say if I could jump in really quickly because one of the interesting points about this case was that um, she was on peritoneal dialysis, which um, 
and they, they gave her the three rounds of peritoneal dialysis, which uh, caused her myoclonus and her gaze preference to resolve. But actually, otherwise, she was unchanged. Um, and that was quite interesting because the authors sort of describe how peritoneal dialysis um, isn't thought to be that effective at removing the acyclovir compared to hemodialysis. Um, and whether this is because the drug has a large volume of distribution within the body or um, just doesn't diffuse across the peritoneum very readily. So I think it was definitely a kind of a pointer. But um, I think if they hadn't stopped the drug, um, she would have been in serious trouble and the peritoneal dialysis wouldn't have been sufficient to reverse the clinical picture. No, that's a really good point and um, very interesting indeed. I, I, I was thinking through, I suppose, if uh, one of the toxicities, of course, is, is renal toxicity. And so if she hadn't had pre-existing renal disease, she would presumably have started to develop that in the ITU setting and then possibly ended up going straight to um, hemodialysis, which would have rapidly uh, improved matters. So um, interesting speculation, but uh, really... Really very instructive case. Um, I think, uh, you know, we shouldn't overplay the toxicity of acyclovir. It is a very, generally very well tolerated drug, but certainly very important to bear in mind um, in the patient who's not improving uh, and to always question really um, the uh, the evidence for, um, for its use in terms of that uh, very specific uh, viral infection. Uh, Sinyu, any, any final points to make on this? No, I think... The ones that we raised are really quite pertinent to uh, really consider whether the criteria is met for HSV and to think outside the box in these settings. But probably in the acute, acute setting, it's, it's reasonable to start someone on acyclovir, but to think around that um, soon after, especially if the investigations don't match up. Absolutely. Ruth, any, anything else to add? I just thought it was a really interesting case because acyclovir toxicity essentially is uh, on the superficial level, completely mimicking what you're trying to treat by using it. And therefore, it's quite challenging for us as clinicians. And there's a real trap we can fall into. And then also by giving the acyclovir, you're potentially, as you said, making the renal impairment even worse, which could further exacerbate the problem. And I was just thinking if I had one of these cases, you know, would I, would I really have the guts to stop the acyclovir before getting that CMMG level back? Because, you know, a viral PCR result can take three days too. And I just, yeah, I think it's a real challenge. But looking out for, I think they pointed out fever and headache being the kind of two key things that you don't get with the acyclovir toxicity that you would do with a viral encephalitis. So, yeah, I found it really useful. Very good points. Great. Well, thank you very much, Ruth, for kicking us off. So we'll move now to the second case, uh, which, uh, Sidney, you're going to... Um, tell us a little bit about. So over to you. Yeah, thank you. So the second case is by first author, Dr. Panacea et al. And their group is representing several hospitals, including Nobles Hospital, Royal Stoke University Hospital, and Bangor University. It is a case about a man in his 60s who attended the emergency department with left-sided numbness and paresthesia. These symptoms started quickly that morning and occurred within minutes, affecting his left arm and left neck. There's some initial investigation given, which was done by the emergency team, and they identified reduced fine touch in the left upper limb. They described it as a glove-like distribution, and there was also some left upper limb pass pointing when testing finger-nose movements. Uh, 
the lower limbs and other tests of coordinations were normal, and Romberg's test was negative. Strength was also described to be preserved in all four limbs with no other focal neurology. Great, thank you. Um, so Ruth, we've got someone presenting with an unusual uh, sensory syndrome and a hemisensory syndrome. Uh, and when we sort of see that in the clinic, uh, we tend to sort of uh, feel that the yield from our investigations is often gonna be quite low in that sort of setting, but this is much more acute. Um, so what what are you sort of feeling about this um, if, if when someone comes along with, with a rather acute presentation like this? So I suppose when anything comes on fairly quickly, you do think of vascular causes, although it, it sounded like it evolved within over a few minutes. Um, so I suppose you can get, rarely you can get very pure sensory strokes, although they're not common. Um, so that would be something worth considering. Um it sounds like the presentation was mainly sensory, so but with some positive and some negative features. And the left-sided pass pointing sounds a bit more cerebellar in flavour, I suppose. So, yeah, thinking about hemisensory syndrome, um, I suppose if we're thinking about where the lesion is, if it's in the brain or the brainstem, I've said about sensory strokes, um, I suppose there's a possibility that this could be inflammatory, um, such as MS, but the time course seems incredibly rapid for the development of those sorts of symptoms. Patient would be, we're told he's in his 60s. If it was a first presentation, I think that, I think we could be fairly uncontroversial by saying that would be pretty unusual um, uh, and an unusual sort of uh, presentation, even within the broader spectrum of, of um, demyelination. But I suppose there are broader demyelinating syndromes you recognise that uh, we'd have to consider. What do you feel about the time course in relation to inflammatory syndromes? What what are you normally expecting the time course of those to be in terms of, you know, seconds, minutes, hours, days? I'd probably expect them to evolve over hours to days, really, and keep progressing rather than be that, that rapid. Um, yeah. Thinking of a shorter time course, I suppose you can get sensory or with migraine, but there's not a headache reported and um, I wouldn't expect that to necessarily cause a deficit on examination, but the paresthesia element could fit with a kind of sensory aura for a migraine. Um, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think that, you know, we're, we're all very familiar with a, a wide range of migraine presentations that come to the emergency department. Um, many of them with very prominent headache um, will be uh, treated wrongly as subarachnoid hemorrhages um, and, and so certainly uh, we, we get a range of, of sensory and other uh, symptoms like um, uh, vertiginous migraine as well. So I suppose we we know it's a case report so we know it's likely to be a little bit more unusual. Um, we would certainly be thinking it was odd for a first presentation in, in this age group so we'd be looking for a past history then and then it would be unusual if it had been so different, really, from his, his typical migraine. But but on the face of it, as a symptom, um, I think that's a very reasonable differential. But but here we're more more concerned. It's an older patient. It's rather sudden, so we're worried about a vascular event, um, and uh, it's difficult to pin down the location. And and as you say, sensory only uh, strokes are recognised, but but also pretty rare. And, and we've got this past pointing that you you said, which again seems to be sort of over and above 
um, an, an unexpected addition, really, despite the fact that the person um, we're told isn't weak. So, um, yeah, so let's um, find out uh, what investigations were done from there, Sinew. So there were some initial blood results which actually showed a normal full blood count, electrolyte coagulation profile. He had imaging of the brain in the form of an MRI scan, as well as the cervical and thoracic spine. And this didn't show any evidence of an acute stroke or any other lesion described in the head or spine. They did see some old infarcts in the cerebellum, so that was noted. So we think that the cerebellar infarcts account for perhaps the um, the past pointing potentially, but we haven't got an explanation for uh, the uh, the hemisensory symptoms or the lesion is too small uh, to spot. So at this stage, Ruth, would you feel that we'd reach the end of investigations? Anything else you would like to do or, or would we reassure this patient um, on the basis of, of not being able to find a, a stroke? I suppose we might just hear about risk factors in, in, in the past history for uh, for stroke-like events. Sinew, did, did you um, have any information there? So no specific risk factors were documented, I believe. Um, although I suppose with this presence of the old infarcts in the cerebellum, he probably has some form of vascular risk factors that may uh, have contributed to this presentation or indeed any previous ones. Yeah, and, and we're not told, are we, that... that, that we were told there's some old infarcts in the cerebellum, but we're not, we, we make the assumption that there weren't any evidence of any old infarcts anywhere else. So, Ruth, when you've got evidence of previous infarcts in the cerebellar region on their own, any any sort of thoughts on that in terms of uh, um, how they might have arisen in the past? Well, it certainly does make you wonder about his cardiovascular risk factors, and I don't think at this stage we've had an ECG, for example, Um um, or we know whether he's had any other sort of stroke-like workup for these infarcts in the past. Um, the other thing I suppose it makes you think about is um, if he's a vascular path, maybe he's at higher risk of a myocardial infarction, which could also cause sensory symptoms in his left arm, which is a bit um, non-neurological. But um, So I definitely want to see a 12-lead ECG um, and a troponin, um, because I suppose he could have had a silent MI, it would be good to look at a lipid profile and some of his other vascular risk factors. And then I suppose, you know, you, it's not common, but you can have scan negative strokes, can't you? So um, I wouldn't necessarily rule that out altogether at this stage. And then I don't know whether we fully considered the cord as well. I didn't mention that before that, you know, with a hemisensory syndrome, it could be the localization could be the cord as well as the, the brain. So they did do imaging of the um, of the cervical and thoracic spines so uh, they'd obviously made a decision to do the central nervous system in full and didn't find any lesion i suppose i was thinking if if there were evidence of old infarcts in the cerebellum but nowhere else it, it, that might have been really an early clue to some sort of vertebrobasilar system differences or something some sort of pathology there really but it certainly explains perhaps the the cerebellar signs uh, and, and i guess from what we can read here, because uh, I think uh, we're then told he reattended. I guess at this stage he was sent home. And uh, uh, um, Sinew, tell us what happened when he reattended. Yes, so he reattended to the emergency department two days later with 
similar or in fact worsening symptoms. So he had paresthesia in the same distribution in the left upper limb. They also described that he had an unsteady gait where he veered towards the left. A repeat neurological exam showed normal tone and normal power in all four limbs, but there was reduced fine touch again, this time in the left arm and leg. And there was some reduced proprioception in the left hand as well. Deep tendon reflexes were described as normal. There was no other focal neurology. And this article goes on to document an, a National Institute of Health Stroke Scale score, so NIHSS score, which was uh, scored at two. But tell us about the repeat um, imaging. Uh, so they, they obviously had another look uh, both at the head but also uh, the cervical spinal cord. Yes, so they did a repeat MR scan of those areas, and this time it showed a focal area of T2 hyperintensity in the left posterior paracentral aspect of the spinal cord around the craniocervical junction. This area had a triangular morphology involving the dorsal columns. Uh, this includes gracile and cuneate fascicles. Okay, and how did they decide... Um what the etiology of that, I guess, uh, uh, ischemic versus inflammatory? What were the clues there? So I think it was a relatively contained area of T2 hyperintensity in that area, which pointed them towards an ischemic etiology. But they did also do a contrast-enhanced MR and geography of the carotid and vertebral arteries. And this time it showed a small caliber left vertebral artery with no visualization of the distal segment. They thought this was suspicious, uh, but despite the lack of this signal, the post-contrast axial T1 images showed thickened and enhanced wall of the intracranial segment of the left vertebral artery. And so this pointed them towards an inflammatory process. So they did diffusion-weighted imaging, and uh, there were some diffusion changes, and then they compared that to the uh, ADC map to see whether that would represent new ischemic uh, type of DWI changes. And, and indeed, the findings suggested that it did. And as you say, they then, with contrast, also demonstrated uh, that there was uh, some enhancement within the left vertebral artery wall. And it's really quite striking, actually, in their uh, figure four that there's uh, an apparent enhancement. What I do think is interesting there, and I was trying to, to understand, was that in a contrast scan, one, one might expect there to be flow visible within the vessel, but, but, but actually the timing of the, uh, of the image may vary between the sort of um, actual blood flow imaging uh, versus the, the vessel wall enhancement. So that may just be an artifact of, of the different windowing of that. It may also be, I guess, that there wasn't really any flow um, because we can certainly see in figure three, uh, we can't really see much flow up the vertebral artery there. Um, but nonetheless, there is certainly an appearance of, of uh, changing the wall in that, in that artery. So Ruth, so we've got changes here now that, that uh, first question is, do you feel that they anatomically fit with the symptoms or is anything that, that that is outside that and then how do you put that together with the the, the time course uh, the worsening and then also this change in the in the artery so Zin you described this kind of triangular morphology of the of the lesion in the left paracentral aspect of the cord so 
I think the shape of that um, would suggest that this is um, affecting the dorsal columns on the left. And that would make sense because the patient has deficits in, um, I think it was joint position sense in the left hand and light touch. So um, that makes sense because it's prior to the decussation. Yeah, so we'd expect ipsilateral symptoms, yeah. Um, but it's interesting because we're not told about um, whether there was a dissociated sensory loss. Um, we're not told about a pinprick or temperature deficits, but I think it does fit with the posterior cord syndrome and the the symptoms have progressed to involve the arm and the leg. So um, both uh, fasciculae seem to be affected on the on the shape on the scan. I think as well it would explain the unsteady gait and the veering to the left if there was a proprioceptive deficit too. So I think anatomically um, it does make sense. Uh, and then I suppose the pattern of the different imaging types would suggest um, that it is an infarct, which fits with the relatively abrupt onset of the symptoms. But what about the evolution of the symptoms, though? They, they were sort of still getting worse, weren't they, over over a couple of days when he reattended because things were getting worse? Does that sort of make you think it's a more complicated vascular process? Yes, I suppose it sounds like it's more than one hit, as it were. So um, the fact that they picked up this thickening enhancement of the wall of the um, the artery, the vertebral artery on the left, maybe suggests there's some sort of inflammatory process or vasculopathy, which is continuing to cause new infarcts and deficits. Yeah, I definitely wondered that. I, I, I was trying, I was struggling with this case to sort of marry up those two things. They make the point really, and, and I think correctly, that uh, the left vertebral artery abnormality was likely to be the primary cause of the stroke. I think that's difficult to get away from that. So there's clearly a focal abnormality in that vertebral artery. And then there's an appropriate level uh, lesion on that side and appropriate symptoms. So I think we've got a sort of uh, a clear sight of the pathology. But then, but then what is going on in that artery? So we've got clearly got distal flow. It's a, it's a overall hypoplastic uh, left vertebral compared to the right, which is very common to find one that's hypoplastic, um, and not uncommon sometimes to find that the flow isn't isn't um, visible uh, distally. But if we're saying that that is what's happened here, then we're looking for something that's acutely happened in that blood vessel. So, uh, and 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 I don't think sinew they 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 come to a particular conclusion about that. But uh, Ruth, did you had you had any? sort of wider thoughts about what the process might be occurring in that in that vessel? Well, I think um, it would be important to exclude a vasculitis, so to do a kind of a full yeah. blood screen, including an ANA and an anchor, an ESR complement, all of those sorts of things. Um, and also maybe it would be worth doing a PET scan to see if um, there were any other vessels affected elsewhere. Yeah, this would be, I guess, at least medium, if not large, artery uh, arteritis, really. And um, so, yes, I, I was looking for the uh, the inflammatory markers here and wondering about that. There wasn't really a sense of a prodrome of malaise that we might we might sometimes see with giant cell arteritis. Um, but um, I, I think that is a that is definitely an issue of concern. And I suppose I was also wondering about whether. It, it, conceivably this could have been a dissection um, now I think the radiologists are exceptionally good at looking for the clues around that um, and I, I assume that must have been 
considered. Sinew, did you get a sense that that was very strongly sort of thought about and, and ruled out? Um, what were your thoughts on that? I, I might just go through what they what they did. So this patient was admitted and managed as having an acute ischemic stroke with management of his blood pressure and antiplatelet therapy, as well as a hydostatin. So very much sort of an acute ischemic stroke management. They didn't give him corticosteroids initially, and he had a vasculitis blood screen to look for things like ANA and ANCA, which Ruth suggested, and this all came back negative. So I feel that perhaps this pulled them away from a vasculitic process. And I know that you know MR contrast scans, so certainly MR angiographies tend to overcall um, narrowings of vessels quite commonly. And so on the stroke unit, an MR angio often is followed by a CT angio or even a cortodopplers if it's the carotid arteries that we're looking for. So perhaps they thought around those lines and in keeping with, as you said, the lack of prodrome and his sort of age and vascular risk perhaps went with um, this being a sort of an ischemic stroke, not related to a vasculitis process. And I think right at the end, they, they do talk about the sort of um, the, the range of causes uh, of this territory and atherosclerosis and dissection. And they they say the patient had no symptoms to suggest dissection, I guess, such as um, obviously neck pain um, or, or the particular manoeuvre that, that would be likely to cause dissection. Um, interesting, though, they said no evidence of atheroma on imaging. So that that then, of course, makes it all the more um, unusual, really, if 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 we were saying this was a rather focal area of atherosclerosis, um, perhaps there was some sort of uh, atherosclerotic plaque rupture that caused an inflammatory reaction. But yet we've not seen any any evidence, or they didn't see any evidence of atheroma more widely. But I guess the management here. Uh, has covered most things, and importantly, there doesn't seem to be evidence of a brewing systemic vasculitic sort of problem. So presumably, sinew, the patient stays on a statin and stays on um, an antiplatelet uh, and good control of blood pressure and, uh, and and then has a very strong chance this is an isolated event. Yeah, I believe so. So there's a bit more information that this patient had a follow up at three months and symptoms had completely resolved, no further deficits and repeat imaging showed resolution of the diffusion restriction as well, which fit with their expectation from the case. Um, but I agree, I, I'm sure that they remained on an antiplatelet and a, a probably a high dose statin and had some other investigations like a halter monitor just to rule out um, other causes like a thromboembolic source. Yes. Well, another very instructive case, uh, and thank you for that one. And uh, I, I think an important uh, reminder, really, that the onset of symptoms really does uh, trump everything else. And uh, regardless of the slightly unusual uh, hemisensory-only nature of the symptom, it did come on uh, acutely. It was someone, an older adult, and so we, we, we had an immediate suspicion of some sort of vascular event. And, uh, and 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 also the technology here was able to localize that, um, uh, albeit a reminder that it's not always there at the immediate scanning and and sometimes evolves over the period afterwards. Any other points you wanted to make on that case, Ruth? I just thought it was really interesting. I think I suppose when I think about spinal cord infarcts, I think about anterior infarcts and 
not really the, the posterior infarct. So um, I know they're a lot less common, but um, it was interesting to kind of work through it and think about that from a different perspective, really. Absolutely, absolutely. And Sunyu? Yeah, I would just echo that. It was an uncommon presentation of something which is uncommon to begin with. And yet the anatomy fit, which is always nice um, and corresponded with the findings. Uh, so very interesting case. Great. Well, thank you both for uh, for going through these cases. Uh, it's uh, such a pleasure to talk through neurology cases. I certainly find it one of the, the most satisfying parts of a, of a career in neurology is to talk through cases with colleagues and uh, thanks to the authors for um, uh, for producing these uh, very nice cases uh, and submitting them to the journal so um, we'll see you on the next podcast thanks very much